Jodcast. Taste the electromagnetic spectrum with Tom Armitage, Harry Brotherton, Ian Harrison, Fiona Peavy, Tom Hayer, Minnie Mo, Jake Morgan, Ian Morrison, Francesca Pierce, Tom Sprague, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, May 2017 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Fiona, and here joining me in the studio today are Francesca and Minnie. Say hi, guys. Hello! In the show this time, Tom interviews Professor Ian Morrison about being Ian Morrison, and Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the May night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian Harrison with this month's news. In the news this month, Cassini begins its grand finale, cosmologists debate a cold spot, and scientists go on the march. The much-storied Cassini space probe began the last phase of its long mission around the solar system this month with a spectacular plunge through the inner rings of Saturn. Since being launched in 1997, the joint European Space Agency, NASA, and Italian Space Agency mission has sent back a stream of amazing images and exciting data on Saturn and its moons. The mission has included flybys of the ice moon Enceladus, methane lake-covered Titan, and two-tone Iapetus, as well as continuous observations of Saturn itself. In 2005, the Huygens probe, which had journeyed along with Cassini, landed on the surface of Titan and sent back some of humanity's most memorable images of another celestial body, showing the first evidence of stable liquids flowing and pooling anywhere else other than the Earth. Cassini itself has had its mission extended twice already, but is now entering the final phase, more than 20 years after launch, which has been christened the Grand Finale. This retirement plan will culminate in the spacecraft descending into and being destroyed by Saturn's atmosphere, but manoeuvring into the correct orbit for this will also create a number of opportunities to eke out some more exciting science. First, on the 22nd of April, Cassini flew by Titan in order to slingshot itself into an orbit which would take it between Saturn's innermost rings, known as the D-rings, and the planet itself, closer to the surface than any other spacecraft has been before. In order to shield itself from particles inside the D-rings, expected to be mostly tiny particles of water ice between 1 and 100 micrometers across, whilst travelling through them at some 77,000 miles per hour, Cassini readjusted itself so its 4-metre high-gain communications dish was held out in front, with the hope it would deflect any incoming particles. This did mean that the spacecraft was unable to communicate during the plunge, however, ensuring a nervous wait for controllers on the ground. 20 hours after beginning the manoeuvre, Cassini re-established contact and began sending back data, including the closest ever pictures of Saturn's atmosphere and the inner rings. Over the months until November, we will see 21 more of these plunges until a final goodbye is said and Cassini disappears into the planet's atmosphere one final time, ending a hugely successful mission which has continually captured people's imagination for 20 years. Also in the news this month, a new paper posted to the Archive preprint website sparked renewed discussion as to the significance, or not, of a particularly cold spot in our map of the Cosmic Microwave Background, or CMB. The CMB is one of the most important data sets in cosmology, 
and consists of the first photons of light to ever travel freely, just a few hundred thousand years after the universe's hot Big Bang phase. The microwave light is incredibly uniform across the sky, at a temperature of 2.725 Kelvin, but does have tiny fluctuations in temperature at the level of one part in 100,000. These temperature fluctuations are the result of fluctuations in the density of stuff in the early universe. In areas of above average density, photons have to expend extra energy climbing out of the gravitational wells created, causing cold spots. And in areas of below average density, they have to climb less, creating hot spots. The exact pattern of amplitudes of these hot and cold spots appears to almost perfectly follow a Gaussian or normal distribution, meaning cosmologists strongly believe the fluctuations were created extremely early on in the Big Bang period, as microscopic quantum fluctuations, which were stretched to the size of the entire observable universe by an exotic process called inflation. However, since they were released 14 billion years ago, the photons which make up the CMB have done 14 billion light years worth of travelling through an ever-evolving universe. These travels leave small but detectable imprints on the photon's temperatures. One of these imprints is known as the Integrated Sachs-Wolf, or ISW effect, after Rainer Sachs and Arthur Wolf, who first described it in 1967. The ISW effect comes from the same process of photons falling into and climbing out of gravitational potential wells. But, rather than from the initial over and under densities, the potential wells are those of structures much more local to us in the universe, such as clusters and voids in the distribution of galaxies. If the expansion of the universe was not accelerating, this would have no net effect, as photons would fall and climb the same distances when entering and exiting the clusters and voids, and so neither gain nor lose total temperature. However, Due to dark energy, the universe's expansion is accelerating. This means that when a photon comes to climb out of the potential created by a galaxy cluster, it finds the potential well is shallower than it was when it fell in, meaning it gains temperature overall, with the opposite happening for empty void areas with gravitational hills. It was this effect which this month's new paper addressed, attempting to find a void in the distribution of galaxies which could explain a particularly extreme cold spot, which cosmologists creatively refer to as the cold spot, in our maps of the CMB. The cold spot has been known about since NASA's WMAP satellite first mapped the whole sky CMB fluctuations in 2003, and has been the subject of much speculation as to its origin. Is it evidence that the initial CMB fluctuations were not Gaussian, meaning that the physics of the inflation period are even more crazy than first suspected? Is it evidence of so-called bubble collisions between our patch of the universe and another completely separate one? Or is it just a by-chance alignment, the largest cold spot, yes, but not larger than we would expect the largest one to be in any one particular realisation of the universe? The authors, led by PhD student Rory McKenzie of the Centre for Extragalactic Astronomy at Durham University in the UK, tested the void explanation by looking for gaps in the distribution of galaxies in the direction of the cold spot 
which could have cooled the CMP photons. Looking at data taken using the VLT Survey Telescope in Chile and the Anglo-Australian Telescope at Siding Springs in Australia, Mackenzie and collaborators were able to make the most precise 3D map yet of galaxies in the direction of the cold spot. What they found was indeed a number of voids, but also a number of overdensities of galaxies, meaning the total ISW effect expected was not enough to explain the coldness of the cold spot. This leaves the door open for a number of the more exotic explanations, but also led to a rush of cosmologists pointing out just how likely it was that the feature exists purely by chance, with most reasonable estimates being around 1 in 50, a pretty high chance for one particular feature to exist. And finally, scientists around the world this month gathered to shout about the importance of science to society. A series of events under the March for Science banner were held in over 600 cities worldwide to coincide with Earth Day on the 22nd of April. The goal of the marches was to amplify the voices of scientists, many of whom are concerned about their role within society and attitudes towards science and science funding in the wake of recent political events such as the election of Donald Trump as the President of the United States of America and the UK referendum to leave the European Union. In the UK, European Research Council, or ERC, grants accounted for some 8.8 billion euros worth of science funding between 2007 and 2013, around 10% of the total spent by the UK government. In areas such as astrophysics, this proportion is even higher up to a fifth in many institutions. No assurances have yet been made as to whether UK scientists will continue to have access to this money after Brexit, either through continued access to ERC funding programmes or replacement of the money by the UK government. And many protesters were keen to remind politicians how successful UK scientists are and how important science is to life and work in the UK. Many others expressed broader concerns about climate change scepticism and other anti-science views which have gained prominent and powerful supporters recently. Though quantifying attendance at protest marches is notoriously difficult, estimates of worldwide participation lie in the few hundred thousands, with a small group of Jodrell Bank astronomers joining the couple of hundred others at the Manchester march. Hopefully, the message of the importance of scientists will have been heard by those in power, and the public in general gained awareness of scientists as a body of real people with concerns about their future. Thanks for that, Ian. Now Tom interviews Professor Ian Morrison about his involvement with radio astronomy, E. Merlin, and his time as the Grasham Professor of Astronomy. Hello, I'm Tom Scrag. I'm here today with Professor Ian Morrison, a long-time academic based here at Jodrell Bank in Cheshire. Welcome. Thank you. Ian, you've been here a long time. When did you first come to Jodrell Bank? As a research student in 1965, so I think I'm in my 52nd year or something like that. A long time. What brought you here? Oh, ah, well, I had an interest in astronomy probably from when I was about 11 or 12. I lived right beside the sea, so it's quite dark, I had to wear some fairly thick glasses, as you can perhaps see, 
And Little Village, my father knew our local optician, Jimmy James, very well. And he actually gave me lenses with which I could make some very simple Galilean sort of type telescopes. And I do remember seeing the crates on the moon, and I think the moons of Jupiter. I'm not sure what else. But I did carry on my interest because if I did win rarely the odd prize at school, they were all astronomy books, and I was able to study little astronomy at Oxford. But I was also quite keen on radios. I used to make them when I was a kid. And I was in the combined cadet force at school and set up the signals unit playing with radios. And at Oxford, I was in the officer training corps and got a commission in the Royal Signals. I didn't really know what I was going to do when I finished my degree. But as I was going up the stairs to the library to do some revision, there was a little advert on the stairs saying, come and read radio astronomy at Jodrell Bank Observatory. Now, I liked astronomy. I liked radios. It seemed to fit quite well. And that's the story. Oh, wow. Okay. Very fortuitous. Absolutely. So that's how you started. What are you doing these days? Well, look, I've been retired for five years, but I'm coming in a couple of days a week to work with Professor Peter Wilkinson on something called MUST, the Manchester University Student Telescope. It's basically panels of arrays of Yagis, which we phase together to make a fairly large uh, radio telescope operating at about 600 megahertz. Um, so I've been helping to commission that. But quite a long time ago, well, I suppose in the 80s and 90s, I used to build our Pulsar data acquisition hardware, design and build it. And I've always thought one ought to be able to detect a Pulsar just using a computer uh, to do all the hard work. And uh, so I looked into this, and in fact, I've designed a Pulsar receiver based on what's called the Arduino Due, which is a little microcomputer board, lots of I.O., and that works perfectly. It won't work with particularly fast <laughs> pulsars, but we have easily detected the one that uh, Jocelyn Bell first detected over at Cambridge. So it does work, and that will be something for the students to use when they use the telescope. That's very interesting, because one of the questions I get asked is um, because I go to yeah. amateur astronomical societies myself, is how can amateurs get involved in radio astronomy? Well, there are things you can do. I mean, you can easily detect the sun, and you can see sun flares on the sun. You can actually pick up some of the noise from the Jovian atmosphere as well. But the trouble is you tend to need relatively large arrays of telescopes. But the Pulsar little unit that I've designed, it can integrate for over an hour and that might allow even a relatively small telescope to, to pick up a pulsar or two. Um, with our 13-metre telescope here, which is quite big, I think we picked up um, the first one we tried in, in a matter of seconds. So there's a chance there, anyway. <laughs> I'll pass that on to the people who keep asking. <laughs> OK. You were involved in the development of eMerlin. Yes, well, I was one of the original designers of Merlin. That was way back in the late 70s, 80s. And I actually project managed the major enhancement to it in the late 80s, early 90s, which was great fun. So I have a real interest in it. And I'm hoping that we may be able to include one of the telescopes down at Gulhini Down. That would have two great advantages. It will actually increase the resolution of eMerlin, which is good. But it's more important than that. It will improve the image quality we get with sources that are lower down in declination, that's looking towards the south. Um, if you looked directly down on the UK from above, the telescopes sort of lie in a sort of an oval, 
which has a, a major axis east-west, Cambridge being at one end and, and Knocken at the other. You could imagine that painted out. That's our effective dish. Now, if you moved high up in the atmosphere, no, way above, moved down towards the equator, can you see, looking at that oval, it becomes narrower and narrower. And if we add in Gunhilly, then we have a much more southerly telescope. So the original telescope area we get is more circular. In fact, if anything, it's, a, it's an oval north-south. So as you go further south, it doesn't become so elongated and narrow. Our image quality is better. What are the chances of that happening? Is well, that... Janet is offering us a fibre optic link, and apparently they are bringing some of those telescopes back into use. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Excellent. That'd be really good. Wasn't there some talk a couple of years ago about Ireland joining in um, with the Merlin? There was. They did actually look into it, the possibility of building a 25-metre dish in Ireland, perhaps um, rather beautifully at Burr Castle, which, of course, was where a beautiful large optical telescope, the largest in the world, was built two centuries ago now. So we'll see. I think that's gone rather quiet, so I, I can't say anything more about that at the moment. Okay, yes. I, I remember the initial excitement yes. in the press, and then it has gone quiet. As well as all the, the radio astronomy, then, you're a founding member of the Macclesfield Astronomical Society. So this is amateur optical astronomy, yes. if I can call it that. And former president of the Society for Popular Astronomy. Yes, that's a UK society, yes. So by day a professional radio astronomer, and by night an amateur, if I may call you that. Yes, absolutely. An optical astronomer. Do you have any hobbies? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, I do love amateur optical astronomy, and of course you'll see I've written some books about it, which hopefully will help other people to learn more about it. In fact, when I was 27, I had a 10-inch optical telescope, which in those days was actually quite a size for an amateur, and I've enjoyed going to parts of the world where there's very little light. Um, in fact, we have a sun that lives in South Island, New Zealand, which is one of the darkest places in the world. I've been there. I went to Kerry, which is a lovely dark sky site in Southern Ireland last year. And I've been to South Africa and other places. So I've really enjoyed seeing the night sky. In fact, when I went to South Africa to a place called Sutherland, which is where the South Africans have built their large optical telescope called SALT, it was actually under construction. We're quite high up there. There was no moon. And I was just overwhelmed by the beauty of the southern sky. And I've loved going down to the south and imaging the heavens there. It's one of the nicest things I, I like doing. So I've really enjoyed astronomy and it still makes a major part of my life. Having said that, I do have some other hobbies, I'm afraid. Well, I've always been very keen on photography. I've been in our local society for probably 30, 40 years now and I was its president for some time. I used to do what you might call competitive photography. That is, you enter prints and pictures for competition. Having got very involved for about five years in astrophotography, I haven't done that much. But in fact, I've just recently entered some pictures for a, an exhibition, which I took on a photography trip to France last year. So that's a major one. And the last one is a bit sad, really. I rather do love narrow gauge railways, particularly as far and out of the way as possible. And I've been all over Europe to Romania, for example, to travel on some of these little railway lines. And I do have a little steam railway going around my back garden. <laughs> 
That's excellent. Any chance we can get a photograph to go on the uh, Dudcast website, particularly of the trains in the back garden? I can try and do that. Yes, I've just been balancing the track. So I was running trains for the first time this year, literally just a day or so ago. I'll try and do that. (laughs) Carrying on with both photography and amateur optical astronomy, then there's a lot of advances with digital cameras and softwares that seems to continue to keep happening. It does. So it's not just a step change, it's every year there are new developments. Is that what prompted you to produce your latest book? Right, well, to put it into context, a couple of years ago, uh, Cambridge University Press kindly published a book called An Amateur's Guide to Observing and Imaging the Heavens. And that was really to bridge the gap between the books for beginners, of which I wrote a couple all the way early 2000s, and there are many detailed books about individual topics. Springer Verlag published those. But there's nothing much in between. So this was a book about everything that I knew about amateur astronomy, both visual and photographic, but at a depth a bit deeper than the beginner's books, but not too bad, so even beginners could read it. And that actually sold very well and it's got some very nice reviews. However, having done that, I have done more work in astrophotography. In particular, I wrote a whole series of articles for Astronomy Now for beginners. And it seemed quite a nice idea to write a book based upon those, essentially apart from about four chapters about specific things to help all aspects of astrophotography. It was done in the form of little projects. Uh, This is a, a nice thing to do. What equipment do you need? How do you go out and take the pictures to do it, or the images? And then in particular, how you process them to give you a really nice image that you can be proud of. And so it starts off with just using a digital camera and a tripod. And there's a rather nice star trails image that's actually on the front of the book that I took, in fact, not far from here, a little mere called uh, Reedsmere, not far from Jodrell. And it gradually advances to more you know, complicated bits of equipment. So it covers almost everything. Again, hopefully in a very accessible way. So that's the plan. So that's been quite fun, and uh, I've enjoyed writing that. That was published, it came out just a month or so ago, and haven't seen any reviews yet. One thing I could say, which might indicate it could be of some use, is that about a year and a half ago, a colleague of mine who was a very good nature photographer, had some very nice lenses, asked me how he could image the Orion Nebula, which is a lovely region, but actually it's a very tricky thing to image because there's an incredible brightness range between the central part around the trapezium stars and the outer nebulosity. So a lot of pictures burn out the inner part. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I told him what I thought he should do and how he should process it. He did that. He produced an image which, if anything, is better than the one I produced. He put it into the annual astrophotography competition run by the Royal Observatory, and he won the beginner's it was, in fact, the Sir Patrick Moore Beginner's Prize for Astrophotography. So maybe my advice can't be too bad. Well, excellent. I mean, I've, I've got both of your recent books, and they're beautifully produced and very clear and, and wonderful guides to, to what to do. Oh, well, I'm glad you so, say so. Thank you very much. <laughs> While we're on the subject of books, how about a guide to radio astronomy? Well, that's interesting. Uh, Early 2000, 2001 or two, I co-wrote, I think I probably wrote, most of it, a distance learning course, which was called Observing the Radio Universe, which was studied by oh, hundreds of students over about seven or eight years. And in fact, I looked after the, the final group of students from the Open University who were doing it. And I put that to Cambridge University Press then, 
saying this might be the basis of quite a nice book. You know, not too detailed, but it gives you a nice coverage of what radio astronomers do and how we do it. And they came back and said they didn't really think there'd be enough interest. Well, I have to say that Professor Graham Smith has written a book that Oxford University Press published recently, uh, and so there must be some interest. And maybe I should try again. That particular course, or the book based on it, you might say, is being used by students in South Africa who are beginning to prepare for the Square Kilometre Array. They're trying to teach people, you know, about... Yes. Um, in fact, they also use a PDF copy, which is free on the web, I shouldn't say, of the textbook I wrote on... It's called An Introduction to Astronomy and Cosmology when I gave the course at Manchester for six years. And in fact, that's still selling very well. I'm amazed. Um, that's been quite good for me. And anyway, they've all got copies of that and they're learning a bit about astronomy and radio astronomy that way. Amazing. I mean, I'm going out to Africa as part of that programme myself in a couple of weeks. So maybe I oh, you might come across, You may come across them anyway. <laughs> Have a read before I go. As well as the books and the periodicals and the contributions to magazines, you've now got an online blog. Yes, I'm never very keen on the word blog, so I called it an Astronomy Digest. And I only started it in December, and I think there are now something like 12 individual essays or pages, in fact, WordPress called them. I started that for two reasons. One is to basically provide articles that could be of interest to all amateur astronomers. In fact, there are three articles giving everything I know about refractors, which are lovely instruments, and I have several, and they're the most beautiful optical instruments. They can be near perfect, which is what I really like about them, and I've got one or two really beautiful ones. So that's of interest. Secondly, to try and update some of the books. Now, in between the two astronomy books, amateur astronomy books that CUP published, they also published a book based upon my lectures as Gresham Professor of Astronomy in London. Um, that was one of the nicest things that happened to me way back in 2007. Uh, I was appointed to the Gresham Chair of Astronomy, which is the oldest in the world and once held by Christopher Wren, apparently, which was amazing. And I gave lectures in London. And basically, versions of those lectures we have put into book form. Now, that came out, I think, late 2014. And there's one thing that's happened since then that certainly couldn't be in the book, although I foretold it, and that was the direct detection of gravitational waves by LIGO, as I'm sure all our listeners know about. So one essay in this digest is literally the last bit of that chapter, shall we say, adding to what's really happened now. So that's another reason. So that's all been quite fun. And I quite enjoy doing that. And every so often, new bits of equipment appear, and I can write about those. So it's to keep those books up to date. But hopefully, it'll be of interest to anybody. And there's a link to it on the Night Sky page. Or if you put Astronomy Digest in, it seems to come up fairly high on Google now. It's gradually worked its way up from about page three. It's now near the top of page one. So maybe someone's looking at it. Well, hopefully. Have you a space for um, reader feedback? Or? We, we may try and do that. My, to be honest, my son's in IT and he set it up for me. Right. And that's something which we haven't got yet. But it would be nice to get feedback because I've got no idea if anybody's reading it or if it's any good. <laughs> so that would be nice. Okay. Ian, you have an asteroid named after you by the International Astronomical Union. So an actually officially named body. Yes, it's um, Ian Morrison without one. There's no, it's just one word. It's only about eight kilometres across. So it's quite small, <laughs> but quite amazing. I, I wasn't expecting it at all. Apparently it was awarded, I think, in September 2003. 
And it then goes on a website. Of course, I don't, it's not a website I look at, so I never knew. But there's a rather nice bit of, I suppose it's vellum. Anyway, one of these nice bits of things that they beautifully inscribe all the reasons for doing it and so on. And that actually was sent to me by post to open on my 60th birthday. And the, the only sad thing was it sort of upstaged any of the other presents I got for my <laughs> 60th birthday, including a very nice painting that my wife had bought me. So that was really quite exciting. It's not really deserved, but it was for my work at Jodrell on Merlin, but also in terms of what's called Project Phoenix, which has probably been the most sensitive search ever for signals from ET over five years. We looked at 230, I think, of the nearest sun-like star systems, some of which we now know have got planets. But of course, we didn't pick up any signals. But maybe I'll come back to that later. The assumption with SASE, since we moved slightly onto that subject, is always that um, radio will be the communications method, whether it's deliberate signals from another civilization, or it's leakage, or it's some other way of detecting a remote intelligence. Have you any thoughts on that? Well, it doesn't have to be radio. The people at Harvard University have been looking for very, very short duration optical pulses because theoretically you could build a laser system that for a few trillionths of a second can actually outshine the star that's nearby and hence you could pick that up with the special detectors. So far, nothing's been found. I do have a worry with SETI. I give a talk about it fairly often. Are we alone? Question mark. I'm pretty convinced that simple life forms will be very widespread. But it took a very long time on the Earth for simple single cellular life forms to become multicellular, which is obviously necessary for them to evolve into things like us. And then it took a very, very long time for that to happen. So there were two long periods, two billion years, I think, from single to multicellular and similar since then. And I'm not convinced that many planets will remain sufficiently stable in their temperature to allow such a thing to happen. And it may well be that our large moon, which may or may not be very common relative to a planet, is important. It certainly stabilised our rotation axis and the various other things as well. So my honest opinion at the moment is that I think that we are probably the only advanced civilization in our galaxy. Now, there could be some in the future. In fact, if our civilization died out because we did something terrible to ourselves, things could evolve again into a Mm. future one. We've got a couple of thousand million years. One problem, though, is that the sun's getting hotter. Okay. And so in about a thousand million years, I think it might be too hot on the surface for life. But that's another matter. So I'm not convinced that SETI will actually ever give us any results. It'd be exciting if it did. But I do think that we may have a chance of detecting the presence of simple life forms either in our own solar system, Mars, Europa, Enceladus are three possibilities, or by observing the atmospheres of nearby exoplanets, detecting the presence of ozone, which must be there only if there's free oxygen, and that will disappear very rapidly unless it's being replenished. And of course, on the Earth, that's done by photosynthesis in plants. So we might get a hint that there's some life on other planets as well. That's based on absorption spectroscopy? Yes, it is, in in the IR, in the infrared. And in fact, if you look at the atmosphere of our spectrum compared to, say, Mars and Venus, both of which show carbon dioxide, Mm -hmm. our spectrum is far more complicated. There are bands due to water vapour, which of course is good for life, a bit of methane, but particularly there's a big band of ozone, or there's an absorption line in ozone, which you can pick up in the infrared. So that's a chance there. 
It's a very exciting time, especially in astronomy. Yes. Especially for us that have an interest and are, are involved. But what would you say was the most exciting development in astronomy in the UK, for example? Well, that's a hard one. Well, in the radio, I think it's got to be the discovery of quasars and learning about the way that they must produce their energy. Because one of them, 3C273, I can even observe with my 12-inch telescope in my back garden. It's a very long way. It's 2,500 million light years away. So can you see there's got to be a lot of energy there? And we're pretty certain now that's caused by matter infalling onto a black hole. And rather nicely, way back in 77, I think it was, I helped discover the position of what we think is the nearest black hole to our Earth. It's Monosterous X1. It was discovered originally as an X-ray flare. But the X-ray telescopes in those days didn't really know where things were very well. And happily using a phase-table interferometer that I'd been using with my student, we were able to locate its precise position. You can tell that there, there is a K2-type star, which is a bit less massive than our own sun, about 0.8 solar masses maximum. You can see it's going around something else. They're co-rotating with an object you can't see. And on the back of an envelope, you can show that the total mass is about 10 and a bit solar masses. If you take off the 0.8, the thing that's going around must be about 9. And uh, if it was a star, you'd see it. And we don't, so it's a black <laughs> hole. It's well above the mass that you need to make a black hole. So I think all that's been interesting. And I think the other work that we've done here, and we've done some lovely things at Joshua, the double pulsar is a way of not directly but indirectly showing the presence of gravitational waves. That's been great. And I think all the work on gravitational lensing that was done here. We discovered the first lens way back in the 70s. So there have been quite... I mean, I think Jodrell actually has played quite a nice role. Uh, I'm sure there are many, many other things, but that's enough to be going on with. <laughs> what would you say would be the greatest challenge for astronomy in the UK in the coming years? Challenge? Well, providing enough funding. I mean, a slight worry about Brexit is that Jodrell Bank gets a fair bit of its income from uh, the European Union, I think it's guaranteed by our own government till 2020, but let's hope that continues afterwards. Because I think Merlin and the Lovell Telescope are still playing a major role in radio astronomy. I mean, look, the Lovell Telescope is now very old, but it's been rebuilt about twice. And I promise you, hand on heart, it is now better in every way than it ever has been. The receivers we have now are vastly better than we had when it began. The surface is more smooth and we drive the telescope around the sky more accurately. So it's still a front-rank instrument. It helps Merlin when it's employed in Merlin, but also it's a pivotal role in what we might call the European Array, the European VLBI network officially, mm -hmm. that stretches across Europe. And that's the highest resolution instrument of any in the world. You cannot do better than what the EVLA does. And we can actually observe the expansion of a supernova remnant in a galaxy 12.5 million light years away. So there's some very nice things going on, and I just hope they can continue. And it's great that we have our links here with the Square Kilometre Array. As I drive into Jodrell now, every time I do it, things are different. <laughs> Roads are changing, trees are going down, and the new building for the SKA is going to be coming up quite shortly. So that's exciting. And another thing I think about the future of radio astronomy is that whenever you've had, or even optical astronomy, whenever you've had an instrument with vastly greater capabilities than anything that's gone before, 
you tend to discover things that you didn't even know existed. Donald Rumsfeld's The Unknown Unknowns. And let's hope that when the SKA comes online, perhaps 2026, that we'll begin to discover things that we have absolutely no knowledge about or inkling of at the mm-hmm. present. That's always the question. We know so much. Why do we keep studying? Or why do we keep spending money on research? But you no idea what you don't know. Exactly. And exactly. that's the area to explore always. Yes. Just to wrap up the interview, yeah. is there anything you want to say to our listeners? I mean, we have quite an audience for the Dodcast. No, it's amazing. And, and thank you for listening. And I hope you do find the night sky audio interesting. It was rather wonderful. I gave a lecture at the Birmingham Science Festival a couple of years ago. And somebody came up to me who I didn't recognise and said, it's great to see the face behind the voice. It was actually Guy Cosmologico, I can't pronounce it very well, the Pope's astronomer. And he'd obviously enjoyed listening to the Jogcast. Whether it was any use to him, I don't know. But I mean, I knew that it was picked up by, you know, across the world. I didn't know it went quite as high up as the Pope, so I was really quite impressed with that. <laughs> Professor Ian Morrison, thank you for your time today. It's been wonderful chatting. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Tom. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So my odd and end this week is about Isis Gaia and how they've released a new video showing the predicted motions of over 2 million stars, traced 5 million years into the future. It uses data from the Tycho Gaia Astrometric Solution, which consists of the common stars found in Gaia, Hippocus, and Tycho II catalogues. The video starts with stars in the positions as measured between 2014 and 2015 by Gaia, Gaia is situated at Lagrange point 2, so does not move relative to the Sun and its system. So, stars which pass close to the Sun, the viewpoint of the video, appear to move faster than those further away in the galactic plane. An interesting thing you can see is the shape of the Orion constellation changing over the course of the video towards the right-hand edge of the frame. And after a few million years, the plane of the Milky Way appears to have moved to the right. This is mainly a consequence of the Sun's motion with respect to other stars in the Milky Way. Although it appears as though regions of depleted stars form, these will likely be filled by other stars not currently in the TGAS catalogue. There will be another data release in 2018, so hopefully they'll update the video to show even more stars. That's um, that's actually so cool. It really is. I, I have to go straight after this recording and Google that video immediately. I really want to see it. I love that stuff. <laughs> it's about three to four minutes long, so they've condensed a few like five million years into about that is amazing and you can't like not much changes it just kind of cycles through and it's just quite mesmerizing to watch i especially love the bit about the shape of orion changing as time progresses that's just so apocalyptic that's terrifying what does he look like now he kind of so now it's like there's the the most recognizable component oh yeah no i know what he looks as in what does he look like in five million oh in five million years I can't say exactly. You will have to watch the video. <laughs> Spoilers. Spoilers yeah. um, can he still be? Can he still be described as a hunter, or has he changed into something more? Can you imagine? Of... In like five million years, kids will look up and be like, "Mom, why did they name that you know ugly bird constellation after a hunter?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be cool if he morphed into something that could still be described as a hunter, like as some birds hunt, right? Some like eagles and hawks and stuff. Yeah. 
So people could, I don't know, it, it would be interesting to think of him sort of changing his shape and moving into a new incarnation as a, a bird of prey instead of a man of prey. <laughs> What's like the cat in Men in Black called Orion? It'd be so yes. cool if he turned yeah, into a... Yeah, the, because the, the, uh, the universe the universe was in Orion's belt, was the, was the, <laughs> that was the thing, wasn't it? As, uh, Spoilers if you haven't seen Men in Black. Oh, sorry. If you, if you haven't seen Men in Black, what is wrong with you? <laughs> It's the best film ever. I always watch it every Christmas. Film. <laughs> That's what I said. Film. <laughs> That's really um, cool. I have a really stupid question. Why is it called the Tycho Gaia catalog? Um, because there were basically like three different catalogs of data releases from um, previous incarnations of telescope of like spaceship. So they're ones that are common to all of them. But doesn't it bother you that Tycho Bra- Brahe? It's always Tycho, whereas like Johann Kepler, it's always Kepler. It's because Brahe uh-huh. is hard to say. Oh. And it's, I mean, but imagine if he was called like John Brahe. It'd be, you know. The John Gashbach. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess it's a combination of his last name being a bit hard to say and his first name being quite a nice. It's really cool. Catchy name. Yeah, it's a cool name. It's really cool. <laughs> um, so Gaia, remind me, because I'm so bad at remembering anything to do with optical telescopes. <laughs> um, Gaia is a space telescope, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so the Lagrange 2 point. Yeah, I, that, that's another thing I think is really cool about this story. I love the Lagrange points. They're, yeah, they're amazing. They're really clever. <laughs> I just love the idea of just, it's like a little shelf in space. You just set things up in it and they just sit there. <laughs> Why don't we getting kind of crowded at some point? Well, yeah. I mean, it's going to get cluttered and they're going to have to like... Some things you up do. They move them every now and again. Like when they finish, you have to like if dive you, into this. If you kept on sending stuff up there, if you kept on just like sending more and more things up to the Lagrange point, do you think the actual Lagrange point itself would change position or change in its character? If you had sufficient mass, yeah. If you like kept on just dumping more and more telescopes on top of it, you've still got like a conservation of mass, but your sent. Interesting. I'm going to have to think about yeah, that. Yeah, it's a hard one. Hmm. Oh, no, anyway, if any of our was. listeners have any suggestions. Uh, <laughs> we're real astronomers, I swear. <laughs> Proto-astronomer. <laughs> um, so my odd and end this week was a little bit odd. It's more of an odd than an end. Um, I was reading the internet and I came, I stumbled across something called gastronomy. Not as in, you know, delightment of food, but G astronomy. I don't know whether Fiona suggested earlier. G astronomy. <laughs> so I'll use that for the rest of this. G astronomy. <laughs> where basically astronomy and gastronomy meet. And so there's this um, uh, professor or doctor or um, down at the Imperial College London, Dr. Roberto Trotter. And he's done some really cool things. He does a lot of outreach. And um, one of the things he's doing is getting people to experience astronomy through taste and he's got things like you know making um i think a bun and putting olives or raisins or something in it but the other one that he had was making a cocktail which had different densities and different layers and i guess while you're drinking it they give you a talk about um about the where is the cocktail hang on there we go from the Cheltenham Science Festival, they created a cocktail, which they named 13.796, after the age of the universe, um, that was inspired by the cosmic timeline from Big Bang to today. 
And so basically it signifies the expansion of the universe. Um, time goes from the bottom of the cocktail glass up, which is kind of cool because when you see the expansion of the universe plots, they always... They, you know, it, they it, look like a martini glass. And the cocktail has different densities. So um, the early universe is... I'm not sure. I imagine the early universe must be the most dense part because yeah, you've got all the Yeah, they use like a agave well. syrup or something. Well, apparently that was mango smoked with wooden chips of whiskey barrels. Awesome. <laughs> which sounds amazing. That does sound good. The Dark Ages was when the universe became transparent, and so they used jellified coconut Malibu. Nice. And the formation... Although, do those two things really coconut and mango? Well, I don't coconut know. Mango coconut would and mango, go that's really a good well. combination. And yeah. I mean, personally, I think whiskey just goes with everything, so <laughs> carry on. Including your PhD. Damn <laughs> oh, <like that> right. <laughs> and this is the layer that I like the most. Formation of the first galaxies, which is coconut water with a suspension of vanilla pods. Ooh. Which sounds delicious. That sounds... I just... I would love to try this, actually. I'm not sure it would be nice, but it's So I can show you guys in the studio. That's what the cocktail looks like. Oh. Huh. Huh. It's quite clever. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not sure how they do it, but I imagine it would be quite cool to, you know, kind of have people sipping the cocktail as you tell them where they are yes, up into the yeah, universe. Exactly. exactly. And then, so you mentioned a bun with, like, raisins baked into it. So it, what it, it, does that represent, like... A rising focaccia dis- demonstrates the expansion of the universe. Right, and the little the little olives represent the things that are being carried. Right, so everything that. is moving away from each other as opposed... Like, you mm. know when you, like, how do you move... Does everything move away from each other and you'll blow up the balloon? It's kind of like Exactly, because, well, I think, like, it's a it's an interesting way of explaining this to people because I used to always think uh, of star formation as being, like, porridge congealing, you know, if you Delicious. Cook. I know, yeah. <laughs> Nobody would want to eat that. But, you know, if you cook a bowl of porridge and um, then you know it's really hot at first and it's all nice and goopy but then if you and leave it flows it, and it flows but as it cools <laughs> much like a star forming region <laughs> little clumps start to form um, and uh, that's that's kind of similar to how stars form so that's how I used to always think about it. and that. Fiona have you taken this to the logical conclusion where you just left your porridge for a long time I haven't actually like as as far as this goes it's kind of more of a Gedanken experiment I haven't actually tested it on a bowl of porridge to see if it starts forming stars <laughs> if listeners are interested let us know we'll ask Fiona to test this for us I mean this, I feel like porridge just comes up so much in this podcast porridge is delicious <laughs> it is amazing well, that's the other issue. When I make a bowl of porridge, I want to eat that straight away. <laughs> I'm not just going to leave it sit there on the counter and oh, get I love cold. Porridge. I know, Fresh awesome. honey. Yeah. Um, the other thing Roboyoto Trotter did, as I started prying into his life, um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. You know, it's like, you know, you, you link. You are you like Facebook stalking him right now? <laughs> I don't have Facebook, if only I did. Oh. <laughs> but he wrote a book called The Edge of the Sky where he basically talked about the universe using the 10 hundred most common words. And Fiona was saying earlier, this is similar to... Oh, to the XKCD guy. So if any of our listeners are familiar with the XKCD webcomic, um, he had a great one. One of the classics is an explanation he did of the Saturn V rocket using the 10 hundred most common used words in the English language. And he's also published a similar book. It's called The Thing Explainer. So it's... So yours explains... Or it's like this... this the universe, or rather, all there is. Yeah, okay. So, and the thing explainer is just, like, stuff. Like, he explains a washing machine. He explains, you know, how a car works, I think. Just, like, kind of regular mechanic. He's In fact, one of the more kind of philosophical ones is, because um, it can take you a while to figure out what he's even talking about. It's a key and a lock. 
and if you imagine trying to explain a key in a lock using so I think it's like he kind of starts along the line of you know um, sometimes people don't want things to be seen, be seen by, other by other people or it's something like that and you know and so they made a thing that helps them keep the things away from other people <laughs> and, and it takes you ages and then you look at the diagrams and you're like oh he means keys <laughs> it's just really bizarre that would make an amazing board game it'd be like curtain clothing yeah 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 it'd be like Pictionary <laughs> we should do it well let me just read you this one sentence from the Amazon blurb through the eyes of a fictional scientist bracket student people hunting for dark matter with one of the biggest telescopes bracket big seers on earth bracket homeworld Cosmologist Roberto Trotter explores the most important ideas about our universe, bracket, all there is, in language simple enough for anyone to understand. So I've read a few pages and I'm looking forward to reading the Kindle edition that I bought this morning. So I thought that would be quite cool. But what I wanted to ask you guys was, what do you guys think of the whole astronomy concept? Because I think it's exciting and most importantly, it gets, it interests people, it gets people into astronomy. Mm. But it feels almost a little bit too gimmicky. I mean, as my friends on Project Runway would say, <laughs> I feel like he almost got lost in the concept. <laughs> I think that's what's happened here. I think it's a really good concept, <laughs> but like, is it just a bit too abstract? Right. I mean, astronomy in itself is so fascinating that d- <sighs> I mean, I think it's great to get, always to get people involved, but as you say, it's, the concept is more exciting than the delivery the, and the I presentation. Feel like, I think the people drinking the cocktails would probably disagree there. That, <laughs> Although, like, honestly, if they're drinking that cocktail, well, I don't know what what exactly is the alcohol content because this is true. I couldn't I mean, find that online. It could defeat the entire purpose of having anything explained to you. <laughs> but for a short period in time, you think you've solved all the exactly. mysteries. Exactly, you're drinking the cocktail and you're like, ah, yes, I understand everything now. <laughs> I'm so good at astronomy. I mean, good astronomy. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I guess, so I feel like it's something a lot of science outreach people do is try and relate astronomy to something that people are more familiar with, uh, like food or um, another thing that people sometimes do, which annoys me a little bit, is um, is things like um the sounds of space and they talk about like... Jodie a- Foster ruined it for us I in know. Oh my god, she's out there with her headphones sitting on her car, listening to the signals, and it's like, just... If it was any other kind of telescope, you'd be like, okay, fine, whatever. But because it's a radio telescope, you can't be going around getting people all confused. Radio telescopes don't listen to space. <laughs> it's they not like... photons. Exactly. It's not like a radio in your car, which also doesn't listen to anything. You listen to it. But anyway, <laughs> that's besides the point. <laughs> So <laughs> the thing explainer Fiona here. <laughs> so um uh we've kind of veered off on a bit of a tangent here because this is really one of my pet peeves. <laughs> so so I feel like at least with astronomy, um, there's not room for any kind of conflation or confusion there. People know that you can't eat space. Say what? <laughs> Sorry, Minnie. I'm so sorry to break this to you. Here I was buying all the mango and the whiskey. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, oh, I'll be able to taste the rainbow. <laughs> the multi-wavelengths. What was it? Mul- the, the electromagnetic, electromagnetic spectrum. spectrum. <laughs> so Skittles don't sue us. 
<laughs> oh boy. Don't sue us, we don't have any funding. We have nothing. <laughs> mm. Okay. Well, on that note. <laughs> on that note. Um, now, moving on to some people that do have funding. Um, so, my ordinance today is about some observations done with ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Slash Submillimeter Array, um, of one of our far-flung neighbours in the solar system. Um, so this is a, a dwarf planet that was discovered in 2014 with the catchy name 2014 UZ subscript 224, uh, but because that's a terrible name, <laughs> the scientists working on it nicknamed it DD because uh, DD stands for distant dwarf, um, which makes me a bit sad because then are all the distant dwarf planets called DD? You could have DD twenty fourteen. You could. <laughs> it's like in Babe, you know the, the 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 film about the pig, and she's like, "What's your name?" And he's like, "Babe." And then they're like, "What are your brothers and sisters' names?" And he's like, "She just called us all Babe." Oh, I never noticed that before. Yeah, it always made me a little bit like kind of not sad, but it's just like, oh, it's pretty sad. You know, my mother and her sister are both called Mary. They're really, Mary, Mary Eta and Mary Margaret. Their their first names are both Mary, um, so yeah. So maybe maybe it's the same with planets. <laughs> maybe they have different middle names. They do. They do have. They go by their middle names because obviously. <laughs> anyway, um, so so Didi uh, was first discovered uh, optically uh, as part of the Dark Energy Survey um, because they were scanning the whole sky for things, and it's uh, so kind of a side effect of that. They 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 had they had a bunch of images of the same patch of sky, and they were able to look for a kind of transients um, in those images by essentially playing spot the difference, uh, except in a more sciencey kind of way. <laughs> they would subtract the images from each other and then they'd be able to tell what was different from image to image. That's um, how the first... Um, uh, didn't that how Henrietta Swan started looking for like variable stars? It something? was similar to that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it was she was not even meant to be discovering anything. There were... The, the, whoever was in charge of them he hired a load of women they were called computers and <laughs> they were just brought in to study all these images and find what was different so yeah it was uh, it was very similar so anyway uh, so that's how Didi was discovered but the optical observations because it's so faint like it's only 23 magnitudes which is as bright as a candle sitting halfway between the earth and the moon oh that's a hypothetical candle. <laughs> um, a hypothetical candle uh, halfway between the Earth and the Moon is how bright Dee Dee is. So, needless to mention, not much could be discerned from optical observations of it. And, like, they couldn't really... So they could tell from looking at, like, comparing the multiple images that they'd taken by watching the path it took through the sky. They were able to tell some stuff about its probable orbital path and about its distance from the Earth. But they weren't able to discern whether it was like so the bit of light they were seeing was that coming from a small object or was it just coming from a large object that was only reflecting light from a small part of its surface. So they didn't really know anything about it other than where it was. Uh, so that's where Alma came in because uh, Alma um, often what astronomers do um, when they run out of things to look at with their optical telescopes when you're finished in the optical band is to look at the other wavelength bands which tell you different parts of the story. Uh, so Alma uh, looks at um, millimetre and submillimetre wavelengths and um, what it can look for at those wavelengths is heat signatures. So anything that has heat emits electromagnetic radiation because of that heat. Um, so that's how light bulbs work um, and humans, humans also do it and you can see it if you put on infrared goggles. So 
So also, um, Didi has a heat signature. Even though it's very, very cold, it still has one. Um, and even though it's very, very cold, it's still a lot hotter than the vacuum of space. So a telescope like Alma can easily see it. Um, so Alma was able to observe DD from from its heat from the the electromagnetic radiation it was emitting due to its heat, and by observing that they were able to deduce its temperature um, because its temperature is connected to how much how much heat it has determines how much it emits, and uh, so they were able to figure out its temperature and they were also able to figure out its albedo, which is how much light it reflects back from the sun compared to how much it absorbs, and they were able to also figure out its diameter because how much temperature, how much heat it has um, is proportional to how big it is. Um, so they learned that it's about minus 240 degrees Celsius, <laughs> toasty hot, and it's got an albedo of about 13%. So that means it reflects back about 13% of the sun's light. Um, from that they figured, so that's a bit more than a rocky planet would reflect back. So there's ice on the surface? Yeah, so it's more than a rocky planet, but less than an icy planet. So they think it's a mixture. Its composition is a mixture of rock and ice. And its size, its diameter, is about 635 kilometres. So that's like, that's about the distance as the crow flies between Aberdeen and London. <laughs> so it's tiny. That's really what? small. Isn't that amazing that they can like they even it? see it and find it? I know, that's what completely... Pluto um, must be so me. pissed off right now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. It's um, I don't think Pluto would like to be lumped in with all these tiny little. Oh, Pluto! <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, th so there was. I mean, that that whole Pluto story is not over. Um. <laughs> so, how many other planets are associated with the star? With the sun? No, with. <laughs> So your dwarf planet is presumably orbiting a star. Oh, it's orbiting... The, it's in the solar system. Oh, wait, this is our solar yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. No, I was confused. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's one of... What do we have now? Lots. Lots, yeah. So, so yeah, because um, recently, at one of the recent international astronomy IAU meetings, um, someone proposed... There was a proposal made, I think, to... Um, because people are upset that Pluto's not a planet anymore. They want it to be a planet again. And this these, this guy proposed that um <laughs> that they not only include Pluto, but include pretty much anything in the solar system that's round. <laughs> so this thing, this Didi, if it's kind of rocky and icy, and it's far, far away, why do they call it a dwarf planet as opposed to a putative comet? I don't know. Doesn't it have to do with... Um... The ellipticity. It has to yeah. do with the shape, yes. Yeah, so they do know it's big enough to be spherical. So I think that's where the line is drawn. I think it's also to do with, like, its trajectory. Oh, like its orbit. Right? Yeah. 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 Elliptical orbit. Versus... I mean, I think how they're classifying it officially is a trans-Neptunian object. Ah. So that's the little Because there's so many of them now. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Uh, so, yeah. So, so some people want all of those to just be redefined as planets and... By yeah. that, by their definition, even moons would would then be also defined as planets, and it's it's I don't know I think that's a bit far fetched. What's in a name? Well, yeah, and they were like, oh, you know, we just it means we would have to think about planets differently. They'd be more like the periodic table instead of learning each individual one. You learn about the different categories. I mean, well, I don't know what he's talking about because I know each individual element in the periodic table off by heart. It's what I spent my entire first year of college learning. <laughs> yeah, you are the coolest. <laughs> but anyway. Um, 
it's a, it's a funny one because I think people are quite emotional about it. They don't want eight planets. They don't want 120 planets. They want nine. They just want it to be nine again. Well, it's um, especially a big deal in the US, right? Because it's the Pluto was the only planet discovered by an American astronomer. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was Clyde, Clyde Tumbo. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so this is a uh, one of the non-planet things that we now know a little bit more about. That's always nice. That's very cool. Can I just tell you a little something about Alma that I was chatting to my friend about earlier today? Sure. So one of my colleague's friends is visiting for an Alma meeting here uh-huh. in the building right now. And he was saying that Alma are thinking about getting some large single dishes to add to their array so you have more sensitivity on the long baseline, oh, which cool. is a fantastic yeah. idea. Yeah. But the acronym for large single dish is LSD. <laughs> <laughs> so it would be like the Alma LSD array. Which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of the Alma images or radio astronomy interferometric images are quite trippy. For. Yeah, well, gen- in general, in general, radio astronomy images, they're kind of these beautiful sort of lines and blobs. And right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that made me very happy. That's nice. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Vinny. <laughs> Okay, well, so now you're here to talk to us about um, some planets that are a bit closer to home. Uh, Here is Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for May 2017. As darkness falls, the two bright stars Castor and Pollux of Gemini will be setting above the western horizon. Further round towards the south is the constellation of Leo the Lion. Coming further over, there'll be a bright star, Arcturus, which is the brightest star in the constellation of Bootes. And high overhead is Ursa Major, and of course, the bright stars that make up the plough. With binoculars, you haven't looked before, look at the central star of the three that make up the handle of the plough, I suppose, or the saucepan in America, and you'll see it's actually a double star system, Alcor and Mizar. But in fact, with a small telescope, you can see that in fact, one of these is itself a double. Beginning to rise over in the east and rising obviously during the night, we have Vega, the brightest star in Lyra. And following that is Deneb, somewhat to the northeast, the brightest star in Cygnus the Swan. So it's not a bad time to observe the sky, not quite as rich as it sometimes is, either in the summer when Vega and Deneb and Altair, forming the summer summer triangle, have come round, or in the winter when we have Orion, Taurus, and so on. So there we go. Well, what about the planets? Well, it's a great month to observe Jupiter. It came into opposition on April the 7th, so this month transits in the late evening and is visible rising in the east at dusk. It's moving in retrograde motion, lying in Virgo, initially some nine degrees over to the right of its brightest star, Spica. This increases to 11 degrees as May progresses. The size of Jupiter's disk decreases slightly from 43.5 to 40.8 arc seconds during May, with its magnitude reducing very slightly from minus 2.4 to minus 2.3. With a small telescope, one should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot, and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Saturn, 
As May begins, Saturn rises around 11.30pm BST and will be highest in the pre-dawn sky at about 4am. By the end of May, it will rise around 9.30pm BST and transit, that's due south, around 2am BST. Lying in the western part of Sagittarius, its diameter increases from 17.8 to 18.3 arc seconds during the month as its brightness increases slightly from magnitude plus 0.3 to plus 0.1. It'll be high enough in the southeast in the hours before dawn to make out the beautiful ring system, which, at over 26 degrees to the line of sight, are virtually as open as they ever become. If only it were higher in the ecliptic, its elevation this year never gets above 18 degrees, and so the atmosphere will hinder our view of this most beautiful planet. Well, Mercury, very short. Mercury is lost in the glare of the sun this month, so cannot be observed. Well, we've been seeing Mars for months now. It currently lies in Taurus, initially making a shallow triangle with Aldebaran to its lower left and the Pleiades cluster to its lower right. In early May, Mars has an elevation of about 11 degrees above the western horizon at sunset, but this reduces to 5 degrees by month's end, when Mars will be lost in the sun's glare basically all summer. By month's end, it will lie some 6.5 degrees over to the left of Beta Tauri, Alnath. Its brightness falls slightly during the month from magnitude plus 1.6 to plus 1.7, while its angular diameter falls from 3.9 to 3.7 arc seconds. No details would be expected to be seen on its salmon pink surface. Venus. Venus rises in the east in the morning twilight on the first of the month and climbs a little higher each morning as May progresses. On May the 1st, the disk, forming a crescent 38 arc seconds high, is just 27% lit shining with a magnitude of minus 4.7, basically its maximum brightness. By the end of the month, Venus shines at magnitude minus 4.5, with its angular size reduced to 25 arc seconds, whilst the illuminative fraction increases to 48%. It is then close to its greatest elongation from the Sun at 46 degrees, which it will reach on June the 3rd. But due to the shallow angle that the ecliptic makes to the horizon at this time of year, even then it will only have an elevation of some 16 degrees at sunrise. But what about the highlights? Well, as I've said, it's a great month to observe Jupiter. It's moving down the ecliptic and currently lies in Virgo. It reaches an elevation of 36 degrees when it crosses the meridian. An interesting observation is that the great red spot appears to be diminishing in size. At the beginning of the last century, it spanned some 40,000 kilometres across, but now only appears to be about 16,500 kilometres across, less than half the size. The shrinking rate appears to be accelerating, and observations indicate that it's now reducing in size by about 580 miles per year. I wonder, will it eventually disappear? Well, on the night sky page, just put in 
Night Sky, Jodrell Bank into Google or another, many of the other search engines. I give a list of the best evening times during May when you can observe the great red spot, which at the times I give should lie on the central meridian of the planet. On the 4th and 5th overnight, after midnight, the moon occults the double star 49 Leonis. Just after 0020 BST, the dark limb of the moon will occult the two stars forming 49 Leonis at magnitudes plus 5.8 and plus 7.9, separated by two arc seconds. As a result, the starlight will take longer to be extinguished than you would expect from a single star. With a good telescope, and if the seeing were good, it might be possible to split the pair using high magnification and then see each component disappear in turn. Well, before dawn on May the 5th and the 6th, we have a chance to see the Eta Aquarid meteor shower. It's one of the finest showers you can see in the Southern Hemisphere, but for us, sadly, may only be glimpsed in the pre-dawn sky in the southeast around 90 minutes before dawn. Sadly, this year, the peak is when the moon is coming towards full, but happily, at that time, it'll be low on the western horizon, so there'll still be some moonlight to hinder our view, but it's a chance of seeing at least a few meteors. And quite nicely, on the 15th of May in the evening, the four Galilean satellites all lined up on one side. That'd be quite a nice thing to have a look with a small telescope. On the 22nd of May, at dawn, Venus will be seen over to the left of a very thin, waning crescent moon. During the last 10 days of the month, from about the 22nd to the 31st of May, there's a chance of observing comet 2015V2, brackets, Johnson. So with no moonlight to hinder our view, binoculars or a small telescope could be used to spot comet Johnson as it moves down through the constellation of Bootes, closing in at the end of the month on the bright star Arcturus. It might then reach magnitude plus six, so should be easily visible in binoculars. And on the night sky page, I give a chart showing its position during those 10 days. On the 27th of May, around midnight, there's a chance of seeing a couple of shadow transits Around 2320 UT, the shadow cast by Ganymede will begin to pass across the Jovian disk, leaving the disk at about 0011 UT on the 28th. During this time, it might be possible to spot Io moving across the disk, with its shadow then falling onto the disk at about 0025 UT. So if you don't mind staying up late and it's clear, could well be worth watching. On the 29th to the 31st of May after sunset, a crescent moon passes the beehive cluster in Cancer on its way towards Regulus in Leo. Firstly, a thin waxing crescent moon will pass the beehive cluster on the 29th and will reach Regulus in Leo on the 31st. And I usually point out something on the moon to have a look at. On the nights of May the 3rd and the 16th, the Hygienus Rill lies close to the Terminator and so will be best seen. For a time, a debate raged as to whether the craters on the moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity. 
we now know that virtually all were caused by impact. But it's thought that the Hyginus crater that lies at the centre of the Hyginus rill may well be volcanic in origin. It is an 11 kilometre wide rimless pit, in contrast to the impact craters which have raised rings. And its close association with the rill of the same name associates it with internal lunar events. It's thought an explosive release of dust and gas created a vacant space below, so the overlying surface collapsed into it, forming the crater. Well, the night's not quite as long now in May, of course, but there are some nice things to observe, and I wish you well. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, and welcome to the May Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Our evening skies this month are dominated by Jupiter and Saturn, along with some of our brightest stars. Jupiter will be one of the first objects to appear, visible in the northeast shortly after the sun has set. A bright waxing gibbous moon will pass within two degrees of the planet on the evening of May the 8th, that's four moon diameters apart. Both will be visible within the same binocular field of view. Just to the right of Jupiter is Spica, the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo, and below, just above the horizon, is orange-coloured Arcturus, which at magnitude minus 0.05 is the brightest star in the northern celestial hemisphere, and the fourth brightest in the night sky. Arcturus has a similar mass to the Sun, but it is further along in its lifespan and has already expanded to become a red giant with 25 times the diameter and 170 times the luminosity of our own star. When close to the horizon, it often appears to twinkle red and green as its light is broken up by our atmosphere. All three of the brighter stars are in the southern hemisphere, and are also visible in our evening skies this month. The brightest Sirius sits halfway up the western sky at the beginning of the month, with Orion's belt now almost vertical below. Rigel and Betelgeuse, the seventh and ninth brightest stars, sit to either side of the belt. Both Orion and Sirius will soon be disappearing from our evening skies, before reappearing before the sun in the morning skies over the coming months. The second brightest star, Canopus, is circumpolar here in New Zealand, never dropping below the horizon. This month it sits a little higher than Sirius, further around towards the southwest. To complete the trio, the third brightest star, Alpha Centauri, is high in the southeast, pointing the way to the Southern Cross. Below Alpha Centauri, rising in the twilight sky, is the curve of stars making the body of Scorpius the Scorpion. Its brightest star, Antares, is a variable star, which ranges in brightness from magnitude 0.6 to 1.6, and is on average the 15th brightest in the night sky. Antares is a red supergiant and one of the largest stars known, almost 900 times the diameter of the Sun. If it were placed at the centre of the solar system, its surface would extend to the middle of the asteroid belt. The name Antares means rival of Mars because of its striking red colour. To Maui, the star is known as Rehua and represents a drop of blood Maui pulled from his nose to bait his fish hook. In Aotearoa, the constellation of Scorpius is seen as Maui's hook, Tematoa Maui which was used to pull up a great fish, which became the North Island of New Zealand. Scorpius, or Tomato Amawi, is our winter constellation, and will be dominating our skies over the coming months, visible throughout the night. 
slitting just 1.3 degrees to the west of Antares and visible in the same wide-field telescope view, is the 5.9 magnitude globular cluster Messier 4, just about visible to the naked eye in a clear, dark sky. M4 is one of the nearest globular clusters in the sky, at just 7,200 light-years away, and is the only globular cluster that Messier was able to resolve with the modest equipment he was using. 20 years before, William Herschel was able to resolve all of the Messier globular clusters with his much larger telescopes. M4 is one of the loosest, most open globular clusters, and features a central bar of 11th magnitude stars, which can be resolved in a 10-centimeter telescope. Through binoculars, the cluster is seen as a round, hazy patch. Messier 4 contains some of the oldest stars known in our galaxy, with an estimated age of 13 billion years. Discovered by the Hubble Space Telescope in 1995, these white dwarf stars are the remnants of ancient solar-like stars that have already shed their outer layers into space. In 2003, a planet was discovered orbiting one of these white dwarfs and its pulsar companion the first circumbinary, i.e. orbiting both stars, planet ever found, and the first planet detected in a globular cluster. With a mass of around 2.5 Jupiters and an estimated age of 12.7 billion years, it is also one of the oldest known extrasolar planets, earning it the unofficial nicknames Methuselah and the Genesis planet. A little over halfway from Antares to Arcturus is another globular cluster, Messier 5, or NGC 5904, in the constellation of Serpents. At almost 6th magnitude, it is also tough to spot with the naked eye in anything but the darkest conditions, but with binoculars it is easy to find, although you will need a small telescope to begin to resolve it, and start to pick out a slightly elongated shape and a few edged stars. With a calculated age of around 13 billion years, M5 is one of the oldest globular clusters known and at 165 light-years in diameter and containing hundreds of thousands of stars, it is also one of the largest. It also contains 105 known variable stars, with the brightest and most easily observed variable 42, changing from magnitude 10.6 to 12.1 in just under 26 and a half days. To find M5, you can star hop from the faint star 109 Virginis, to 110 Virginis, and then around twice the distance again to find 5 Serpentis, and M5 is just 20 arc minutes to the northwest. Below Antares, and rising a little later in the evening, is bright cream-coloured Saturn. It is a great time to observe Saturn through a small telescope at the moment, with its rings set close to maximum tilt. Saturn's largest moon, Titan, can be spotted orbiting around four ring diameters from the planet, with several smaller, closer moons also visible in larger telescopes. In the morning sky, Venus rises in the east around 4 a.m. and is joined by Mercury around an hour and a half before sunrise. Mercury reaches its greatest elongation west on the 18th of May and is making its best morning appearance of the year, rising before twilight begins throughout the month. If you're out planet spotting in the early hours, then take a look for the Eta Aquarids meteor shower, which peaks around the 6th of May. The shower is caused by the Earth passing through the trail of debris left behind by the famous comet Halley. The shower appears to radiate from a point near the fourth magnitude star Eta Aquarii, one of the brightest in the zodiac constellation of Aquarius, representing the water bearer. 
The radiant won't rise in the eastern sky until around 2am here in New Zealand, so the best time to go meteor spotting is in the few hours before sunrise. At the shower's peak, you may be able to spot up to a meteor a minute, many of them fast and bright and leaving glowing trails behind them. Viewing conditions this year will be much better than last, with the moon setting on the other side of the sky in the early hours of the morning, giving you a good few hours of observing time before the sun rises just after 7am. You may also have a chance for some binocular comet hunting this month, as Comet Panstars C2015ER61 heads towards perihelion, its closest approach to the sun on the 10th of May. At the start of the month, it will be moving from Aquarius through to Pisces and may be visible with binoculars in our morning skies. On the 4th of April, the comet experienced an outburst, brightening from 8th to 6th magnitude almost overnight. And whilst it is always hard to predict how bright a comet is going to get, this one is definitely worth keeping an eye on. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. We had no post or email this week, but there were some Facebook reactions to our April Fool's episode. Oh, we're still getting people with that. It's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I feel a little bit bad. (laughs) George is alive, though. George is alive, yeah. Still still going strong. So, Teresa Arispi on Facebook says, Yay, I'm so glad the drug cast isn't really ending. Here's to many more years of science. And Ellen Piercy says... I've only just stopped sulking that you got me. In my defence, I am behind on podcasts, so only listened on Saturday, not on the first. Oh, sorry, guys. Ah. <laughs> ha ha ha! The real joke is nobody funds us. Fiona. <laughs> 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 okay, well, uh, thank you for the feedback. And if you want to get in touch with more, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts to the addresses on the website. Okay, well, thank you to Professor Ian Morrison for the interview. The editors were Tom Armitage, Claire Bretherton, Tom Hillier, and Charlie Walker. And the producer was Jake Morgan. And... Until next time, Jada on! on.